0: Welcome to Frontline Church South OKC Sermon Podcast. Each week we will have new sermon content from Sunday mornings, both video and audio options. Please visit south.frontlinechurch.com for more information. If you have any questions, need prayer, or have any other needs at all, please email hello at frontlinechurch.com. Thank you so much for tuning in.
1: Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear and I will speak. I will question you and you make it known to me. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My anger burns against you and against your two friends, for you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. Now, therefore, take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves. And my servant Job shall pray for you. For I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right, as my servant Job has. So Eliphaz the Temanite, and Bildad the Shuite and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them. And the Lord accepted Job's prayer. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had had before. And Job died, an old man and full of days. This is the word of God to us.
0: All right. Hey, good morning. You guys can grab a seat. Man, thanks for being with us today. It's great to have you. Uh, if you are new, my name is Andrew. I get to serve as one of our pastors here. And uh, it's really, really fun to be able to jump into the last week of our Job series before we kick off uh, our new series on the Gospel of Mark. Hey, one thing I want to let you know about uh, uh, real quickly before we jump into Job 42, which if you have a Bible, go ahead and head to Job chapter 42. If you don't have a Bible, we're going to have the words up on the screen. But one of the things I want to let you know about is as a church, we really value uh, the fact that as pastors, there's the, it's it's a beautiful, weighty job, and with it comes a lot of complexity. And so one of the things that we do is every seven years for our pastors, we send one of our pastors on sabbatical going into his seventh year. And we have one of our pastors who just started his sabbatical last week. I'll show you his photo if you don't know him. This is Pastor Aaron Addison. If you saw a guy very quickly running out of our building last week after the sending and benediction, like hightailing it out of here, it was Aaron. It's because he he, he kicks off his sabbatical. And what that is for us, that's not like, hey, go take some time and do work or go take some seminary classes, or go write a book. For us, it's a, hey, go take some time and don't do anything. Rest and reconnect with your family and with Jesus and why you got into ministry in the first place. And it's just a time to, to be away from the particular unique burden of pastoral ministry, and so he'll be gone for the next several weeks. You will not see him around, so if you're like, hey, where's Aaron? No, we did not fire him. Yes, he's still employed here. Uh, He is on sabbatical, so let's be praying for him. Let's be praying for his wife, Kara, for his two kids, that God would meet them in all the ways that they need, and that they'd have just a a ton of fun. I think Aaron's going to come back tan- and thin, and more hair on his head, maybe. I don't know. It'll be great. So pray. you can pray for those things, too. it would be great. So let me, let me take a second, and we'll jump into Job 42, and then we'll get after it. Father, thank you for the gift that it is to sit under the word, uh, to be shaped by the word, and, and this story in particular, I'm asking God that you would protect us from leaving the wisdom of Job as we step out of this book. God, we, we recognize that we're stepping out of this book into a new book today, but we pray that you wouldn't allow us to walk away from the formation and the, the stuff that you've been doing inside of our hearts and inside of our lives. So I pray that you'd come and move. I need the help of the Holy Spirit today for this to be helpful, for this to be beneficial. So come and move, and we, we ask that Jesus would be lifted up, but then also that you'd give us handles for our dark day. Pray these things in your name, Jesus. Amen. Today, we get to the end of the book of Job, and the end of the story comes at the end. And I know that that sounds really basic and like no duh, very obvious, but it's actually really important that you grab a hold of that concept, that the end of the story happens at the end can you imagine with me for just a minute if star wars a new hope the very first star wars movie ever made opened up with luke skywalker flying in his x-wing down the trench firing his his uh, proton torpedoes into that that exhaust port and then the, the death the death star explodes and that's like the first five minutes of the film can you imagine like what's the rest of the movie about if the Death Star explodes in chapter one or the very opening scene. Or imagine if Tolkien in Lord of the Rings, the very first chapter of the very first book, Frodo jumps on this giant eagle and he flies to Mount Doom. He drops the ring into uh, Mordor and there, thereby killing Sauron and restoring peace to Middle Earth. And that's chapter one. Like, well, where's the tension? Where's the point? Where's the, where's the struggle? Or imagine if Beauty and the Beast started out. And in the first 10 minutes of the film, Beast somehow comes across Belle and they meet each other. And the Beast and Belle fall in love quickly. And they kiss. And then the curse is lifted. Boom. And everything else is just kind of background stuff of the movie. Imagine, like these would be terrible stories, terrible movies, terrible books, if that's the way that these stories started. And here's why this matters. The reason I'm bringing this up is because we know intuitively as humans that what makes a good story isn't the resolve at the end. It's not the beautiful thing that happens to tie a bow on everything, it's not the the happy ending. What makes a story good is everything that happens in the middle, it's the struggle. It's the frustration, it's the pain, it's the tragedy that then is overcome, it's the tension that the characters have to endure for the entirety of the story, and then the end that brings that resolve. That's actually what makes the end beautiful, is the struggle in the beginning of the story. And we somehow intuitively understand this when it comes to the lives of other people or in books or in movies, but when it comes to our own stories, we forget And actually, if we're honest, I think if we could inject ourselves with true serum and be really vulnerable and honest, many of us live and function with this expectation that every day of our lives is going to kind of feel like a happy ending. Like every day is going to be just really beautiful and everything's going to be the way that we want it to be. And so what happens is because that's our expectation of every day being the, the happy ending of the story, anytime tragedy strikes... Anytime pain enters the story, anytime something unexpected hits you and it takes your breath away, anytime something happens that you don't understand, it can throw you into utter chaos because you did not expect for your life to wind up the way that it's wound up. You didn't expect that thing to happen. And the book of Job is wisdom literature offered to us in scripture, not just so that you and I would wade into Job's story and process his suffering. It's so that you and I would wade into our own stories. Of pain and trials and, and, and unexplainable things that happen, unexplainable painful events that occur, so that we can not throw ourselves into chaos, but actually have a grid for who this God really is and what He's like. The book of Job is wisdom literature meant to say hey, it's not just the happy ending at the end, uh, and they all lived happily ever, and that's how things resolve. The whole point of the story is so that you and I can process our world that we live in, what policies and protocols God uses to set up this world, how we relate to him, how we understand him, and and how we envision the fact that we actually have a real enemy who seeks to wreak havoc on us. And so with all of that in mind, with that idea of the end of the story needs to come at the end, I want to do this. I want to just quickly unpack what the story is. Ha- what, the, what the ending is like, what happens at the end, and then just give you some pastoral burdens that I have for our church as we move out of this into the gospel of Mark. Sound good? Yeah, that's where we're headed. So here's the first thing I want you to see, three quick things that happen in the ending of the story. The very first one is the repentance, the repentance that happens. Now, uh, it's, it's interesting because if you read this book in one sitting, you realize that once this tragedy This unexplainable loss entered into Job's world. And if you don't know what happened, he basically was the the wealthiest man in the East. He had everything. Life was beautiful and perfect. And then, in a matter of moments, he lost everything his wealth, his status in the community, his own children died, his possessions, his own health, all of it. He lost all of it. And so, from chapters 3 through 37, Job is just honestly processing his own suffering before God and before his friends. And as he's processing, he starts to say some really crazy stuff. He crosses the line numerous times and he starts to say, hey God, I wish I could sue you. Like I wish I could drag you into court because you've done these things to me that I didn't deserve. Like I didn't do anything for you to respond this way to me. And Job's mindset was that good things should happen to good people and bad things happen to bad people. And Job's saying, I haven't done anything bad to deserve this level of suffering. And so he begins to think, a lot of things about God. Like, God, where are you? God, have you abandoned me? God, have you just honestly uh, delighted in my suffering? Like, are you up in heaven enjoying the the tragedy, enjoying the pain, enjoying the loss? Or God, maybe, maybe you've just abandoned me altogether and you're completely careless about what I'm going through. This is where Job found himself for so long of the book and then something happens in chapter 38. God shows up. And God actually speaks. He actually says, Job, you've been wanting to, to meet me and take me to court. Well, let's, let's go to court together. And what God does is he actually takes Job on a walk of this universe, the cosmos, and he starts to point out things. And he says, hey, look, do you see those, those mountain sheep over there giving birth? I was with them and present with them on the sides of mountains while they're giving birth. Something as insignificant as mountain goats, I'm aware of their every need. And if I'm aware of mountain goats giving birth, I'm aware of your own story and your own pain and your own loss. He points to the ocean and he says, Job, like, I'm the one who actually told the ocean how far the waves can crash upon the, the shore. I'm the one who set boundary lines for the ocean itself. If I can control something as uncontrollable and chaotic as the ocean, what makes you think that I've lost control over your life? He points to these two uh, mystical creatures, behemoth, which represents death, and Leviathan that represents all the spiritual warfare and, and, and everything evil in our world. And he says, listen, I've got these things on a, on a leash, and no human can contain them, but I have them on a leash. They're my pets. If I can control death, and if I actually hold evil on a leash, what makes you think that I don't have control over the events that are happening in your life. He's saying there's no chaos that's too chaotic for me. There's no darkness too dark for me. There's nothing that's powerful that I can't control. I'm not stupid. I'm not a fool. I'm not distant and aloof. I'm aware of what's happening. I'm wise. I'm good, and I'm controlling this thing in a perplexed way that you will never understand. This is how God approaches Job, and notice Job's response. Chapter 42, verse 1. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And he goes on to say, Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. I had heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes." Job is humbled. He's, his breath is taken away when he encounters the presence of God. And, and, and here's what's important to understand with this word. Job is not repenting of past sins that he's done. That's the whole point of the book is that Job actually didn't do anything wrong to deserve all of the suffering. So he's not repenting of some past sin. What he's repenting of is that demand of, God, I wanna take you to court because I think I could run this thing better than you. And he's saying, actually, I spoke too soon, I retract. And in fact, this Hebrew word repent literally means to retract a declared action. He's saying, I take back all of those things about thinking that you were aloof or thinking that you were a fool or that you were negligent or wanting to take you to court. I I repent of all of those things. So that's the first thing that happens at the ending of the story. Now, it's interesting because the author could have ended the story right there, done. The, The book is over, Job repented and all is well. And actually, had the story ended there, Job would have died a happy and contented man. You get the sense from Job at this point in the story that nothing else needed to happen for Job to be okay. He had met with the very presence of God. Even though he didn't have his questions answered, he had met with God himself. What else does he need? But God actually doesn't end the story here. There's a few other things that happen. So notice the second thing, and this is the rebuke, the rebuke. happens. Chapter 42, verse 7. After the Lord had spoken these words to Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, my anger burns against you and against your two friends. Do you remember the two friends, the, the, the three friends rather, that showed up to at first console and comfort Job? And they're with Job from chapters three onward. But then very quickly, they get really annoyed by Job. And instead of comforting and consoling him, they begin to condemn him. They begin to throw accusations at him like, Job, actually God is doing these things to you because you've done something wrong. He must be punishing you because no amount of these crazy bad things would happen to a good person, so therefore you've done something in your past or you're going to do something in your future and God is punishing you for it. That's what the friends say. God shows up and he says, actually my anger burns against you and against your two friends. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Now notice that phrase, as my servant Job has, because it's gonna show up again and again. Now therefore take seven bulls and seven rams and go to my servant Job and offer up a burnt offering for yourselves and my servant Job shall pray for you for I will accept his prayer not to deal with you according to your folly. For you have not spoken of me what is right as my servant Job has. Do you see how many times he's repeating himself here? You've said it wrong. You've done it wrong. Let me just make sure you get this. You guys are wrong. Wait, one more time. You're wrong. You, you haven't been right this whole time. God wants to be very clear that the friends have done something very wrong in how they've spoken about God. Verse 9 So Eliphaz the Timonite, and Bildad the Shuite, and Zophar the Namathite went and did what the Lord had told them, and the Lord accepted Job's prayer. Isn't this bizarre? This is a really bizarre thing to happen at the ending. Um, God shows up and instead of saying, hey, friends, you did your best, but Job is stubborn and you tried hard. You said some really good orthodox things, but Job is just really stubborn. So why don't you just pray for Job and maybe he will figure it out? No, he doesn't say that at all. Actually, it's the reverse. It's, hey, I'm really upset at you guys for what you've said. You misjudged my character. Job has been in the right the whole time. And so here's what I want you to do. I actually want you to make sacrifices and have Job pray for you. And I'll listen to his prayer on your behalf. Like, I don't even want to hear from you right now. I want to hear from my servant, Job. This is one of the most vindicating things that could ever happen to Job who had been in the right the whole time. And God didn't have to do this. Imagine, the story could have ended and Job could have known in his heart, that he was right the whole time, and yet God goes a step further in his grace and says, actually, I wanna publicly vindicate Job to his friends because he really was in the right. Have you ever seen someone who maybe has been on death row or spent years in prison, and then DNA evidence comes out and there's photographs or there's video of people walking free. You can find this on the Innocence Project online. It has all these stories of people that uh, DNA evidence later comes out, and it actually acquits them of the crime. And there's something inherently dignifying and honoring about that experience, isn't there? Where everybody can know, the whole world can know, that person was wrongly accused. They never did anything wrong. Well, that's what God is doing for Job in this section. Job didn't need it, but it was another step of God's mercy. And here's what's really crazy to think about. Job actually prays for his friends. Like imagine the friends come to Job and Job doesn't go, hey man, you guys really poorly treated me, so pray for yourselves. Like if God's upset at you, that's between you and him. Job actually doesn't do that. He prays for his friends and thereby is forgiving them and showing compassion on them, even though they were in the wrong So that's the second thing that happens. You have the repentance, and then you have the rebuke of Job's friends. And now here's the final thing that happens in the story, and it's breathtaking. It's the restoration. Look at verse 10. And the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he had prayed for his friends. Now, you don't need to see this as like, because Job did the right thing, God rewarded him. In fact, the whole point of the story has been that God doesn't function that way, that he doesn't say, okay, if you do enough good, then good will come into your life. And if you do bad things, then bad will come into your life. No, the, the whole point of the story is that sometimes really bad things happen to people who actually didn't do anything to deserve that. And really good things happen to people that don't deserve anything good to have happen to them. So look at what happens. The Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends and the Lord gave Job twice as much as he had before not just a restoration but actually a doubling then came to him all of his brothers and his sisters and all who had known him before and ate bread with him in his house and they showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him and each of them gave him a piece of money and a ring of gold it goes on in verse 12 and the Lord blessed the latter days of Job more than his beginning and he had 14,000 sheep. He starts at the front end with 7,000. He has 14,000 sheep, 6,000 camels, 1,000 yoke of oxen, and 1,000 female donkeys. He had also seven sons and three daughters. So actually, all of his children had died, and he has seven sons and three more daughters after this. And he called the name of the first daughter, Jemima, and the name of the second, Kezia, and the name of the third, Karen Hapik. And in all the land, there were no women so beautiful as Job's daughters. That's like, this is all ancient Near Eastern way of saying Job is really successful. Everything is going well again in his life. And their father gave them an inheritance among their brothers. And after this, Job lived 140 years and saw his sons and his sons' sons, four generations. And Job died an old man full of days. This is breathtaking. The story did not have to end here. It could have ended with God showing up and speaking to Job, and Job would have died a contented man. And yet, God in this story is actually showing up and saying, Hey, not because of anything that you've done, not because you suffered well, this isn't some reward for all the bad things that happened and how you handled it, but because I'm good. Because I'm gracious, because I'm merciful, because I actually delight to give more than take, because I delight to pour out blessing, even when people don't deserve it, I'm gonna pour out all of this grace upon grace on you. And Job knows at this point in the story that all that he has is not because of anything that he had done. It's not because of his behavior or his his morality. He knows that what he has comes from the hand of God as a gift and as a grace. And that's it. That's the end of the book. Job repents, his friends are rebuked, and Job is fully restored. And they all live happily ever after, and then Job dies. And that's literally the point of the book. What is the point of this book? Why is this book in our Bibles? And what is the big takeaway for you and I as we depart from this book? Well, here's what I wanna do. I wanna very quickly give you my Job-shaped pastoral burdens for our church, As I've thought about and prayed through this book and wrestled with this book, here are some things that I wanna offer you, four things that we, as we step away from the book, I don't want you to step away from these things. Here's the first one. The book of Job is calling for you and I to explore our motives for worshiping and serving God. One of the reasons why this is in the Bible is so that you and I would do the hard work of actually exploring our motives behind why we're committed to God. Why do you love Jesus if you love Jesus? Why do you worship Jesus if you worship Jesus? Why do you follow after Jesus if you follow after Jesus? Is it because of what you expect to get out of the deal? Is it because you think that by doing that, you're going to have a life that's actually freed and sterile from some of the sufferings that exist, and it won't touch you now? Or is it because of some other benefit or blessing that you think might enter into your world? Or do you just love God for God's sake? This is one of the things that the book of Job is calling us to explore. Like a lot of us, honestly, to quote from Chance the Rapper, we have this theology that says, when the praises go up, the what? the blessings come down. Thank you. Some of you are a little younger and a little more thank you for that. That's great. Other you're like, I don't know what you're talking about. When the praises go up, the blessings come down. But what happens when the praises go up and the curses come down? That's the book of Job is saying, why do you love God? Is it for the blessings that come down? Is it for what you get out of the deal? Is it for the benefit that it offers your life? It's begging you and I to explore our heart motives behind why we're in this thing called Christianity in the first place. Now, it's hard to do this, isn't it? Because we all want to believe that our motives are pure, that deep down, we love God for God. And if we are in Job's position, we would would prove that we are in it for God and God alone. But it's tough to know for sure, isn't it? St. Augustine had a self-test that he gave in a sermon a long, long time ago called On the Pure Love of God. And in this, he, he says, I want you to imagine that God comes to you and wants to make a deal with you. So just think about this. And Augustine imagines God saying this to us. I will give you everything that you want. You can possess the whole world. Nothing will be impossible for you. You will have infinite power. Nothing will be a sin, nothing forbidden. You will never die never have pain, never have anything that you do not want, and always have anything that you do want, except for just one thing, you will never see my face. Now, Augustine goes on, would you take that deal? If not, you have the pure love of God. For look, what you just did, you gave up the world And more, all possible worlds, all imagined worlds, all desired worlds, just for God. Did a chill arise in your heart when you heard the words, You will never see my face? That chill is the most precious thing in you. That is the pure love of God. Friends, did a chill arise in your heart when you thought of that? Did you think, I want God? Or if you thought, I want to want God more than that, that, that sign that what's inside of you is actually the pure love of God, that you're not in it for the blessings and the stuff and the benefits and all the things that potentially might come to you as a follower of Jesus. You're actually in it because you just want God. And this matters because, friends, you and I are never, ever guaranteed that we're going to live a life of blessing just because we're Christians. In fact, often the blessings that come to Christians are not things that you and I immediately classify as blessings. It's like blessed are the persecuted for they will see heaven. It's blessed are the poor for theirs is the kingdom of God. It's blessed are, do you see the point? Being a Christian doesn't ensure a life of ease. In fact, being a Christian often ensures a life that will have some suffering attached to it. So explore your motives. Why do you love Jesus? Why are you in this? That's a pastoral burden that I have for myself and for you. Here's the second thing I want you to to see as we leave this book. Rehearse this story the story of Job, for training on your dark day. Rehearse the story again and again. You and I, in a sense, live between Good Friday and Easter Sunday. Do you know what I mean by that? Not in a literal way, but what I mean is, Good Friday, the death of Jesus on a cross in our place for our sins, that's God acting in human history to forgive us at the cross. Good, Good Friday then gives way to Easter Sunday where the resurrection celebrates that Jesus uh, couldn't be held by death, but he defeated death itself and he's ushering in a whole new world. And in a real way, in a real sense, you and I live in that tension between God starting to act in human history, but Easter Sunday has not fully come yet. In other words, we live in this place where through the death and resurrection of Jesus, he has has forgiven us of our sins. He's ushered in his kingdom in a real way. He's bringing a new world, but there's, there's another sense in which the kingdom of God isn't fully here yet. And we live waiting for the ultimate resurrection, waiting for the return of Jesus, waiting for things to be put right. And so you and I live in this weird tension where there's beauty and there's brokenness. There's profound pleasure, but there's also really perplexing pain. We, we live in this place where there's two different worlds that are kind of colliding together where you can go from celebrating a marriage to then mourning the fact that a, a divorce occurred and it broke up the marriage. You can go from celebrating the fact that a baby was born while also carrying the pain of other people that cannot get pregnant for the life of them. You're you're celebrating the, the good of receiving a job offer and then other people are mourning the fact that they just recently lost their job. You're celebrating the good, but there's bad and it's this world where it's marked with beauty and it's filled with pain and here's the point. This is trying to shape you and form you and I over time to know who God is and what he's like so that when the dark day comes for us, we're not thrown into complete chaos, but we actually can hold tight and trust God in the dark. Notice what James 5 says, James in the New Testament, says about the book of Job. He says this, As an example of suffering and patience, brothers, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Behold, we consider those blessed who remained steadfast. You have heard of the steadfastness of Job, and you have seen the purpose of the Lord, how the Lord is compassionate and merciful. That's the whole point. James wants to say, hey, you want to know what the book of Job is about? It's about the steadfastness of Job, and it's about the compassion and merciful nature of our God. That's what it's about. Friends, the book of Job is trying to get you to remember and to rehearse the story that there really is an accuser and he was the one that actually caused all of Job's suffering. Not God, but the accuser is the one who caused the suffering. And God was the one who held the accuser at bay and had the accuser on a leash. God was the one who sustained Job during his dark days. God was the one who was present with Job even in his raging against God. God was the one ultimately who at the end brought restoration to Job in all of his life. God was the one who did that because God actually loves to give more than to take. He loves to be present and offer mercy more than to be absent in a way that is felt. This is what the story of Job is about. Rehearse this again and again. Because if you're not in a dark day today, a dark day's coming. And I'm not saying that to be depressing, I'm saying that to be realistic, that we live inside of a story and the dark day is either here or it's coming. Rehearse this story again and again. Here's the third thing I want you to see. I want you to see the hope that we have in Jesus I want you to see the hope that we have in Jesus because ultimately the story of Job is really about him. Think about this with me for just a minute. Job was an innocent man who suffered greatly and yet was justified by God in the end. Job silenced the accusation of the enemy through his faithfulness to God. He actually silenced the accusation of the enemy. Job was a man who made sacrifices and offered prayers of forgiveness for his sinful friends to save them from the judgment of God. Does that sound like anybody else in scripture that we can think of? It's ultimately meant to remind us and point us to Jesus Christ. David Ash said these words, as the blameless believer par excellence, Jesus fulfills Job. As a priestly figure who offers sacrifices for his children at the start and his friends at the end, Job foreshadows Jesus, the great high priest. The monstrous ferocity of the beast, Leviathan, reaches its vicious depths in the life and death of Jesus, who in his passion endured deeper depths and a more solemn and awesome darkness than Job. The drama, the pain, and the perplexity of Job reach their climax at the cross of Jesus Christ. In the darkness and God-forsakenness of those terrible hours of lonely agony, the sufferings of Job are transcended and fulfilled. And as the blameless believer, accused and despised by men, but finally vindicated by God and the resurrection, Jesus fulfills the drama and the longings of Job for justification. Friends, this is a story meant to point us towards Jesus Christ. If you are suffering, Jesus knows what it's like because he entered human history to suffer alongside of us. Jesus knows what it's like to sit on the ash heap, as it were. Jesus knows what it's like to have your friends misunderstand you and wrongly accuse you of things that you didn't do. Jesus knows what it's like to be a good person and have pain enter your world. He knows what it's like to experience the silence of God. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to be put inside of a a cold tomb. He knows what death feels like. Jesus can relate, and because he can relate as a human being, he can also offer sympathy to you and comfort to you and mercy to you on your dark day. That's what this story is meant to point us to. Ultimately, your hope is found in Jesus, even in those painful moments. And then, friends, here's the last thing I want you to see, the fourth thing is the end comes at the end. The end comes at the end. You see, everybody loves a good ending. And friends, if you're a follower of Jesus, we have the best ending. It is an ending not where God mysteriously shows up in the night and sucks people off the planet and we go live up in the clouds forever and ever in a place called heaven. That's not the ending of the story. In fact, that's never, ever even taught in scripture one place. Do you know what the ending of the story is? It's God bringing heaven to this earth. It's the beauty and the beast moment, but for the earth and for you and I, where the the curse is lifted, there's an explosion of God's presence on earth and he lives here in the way that he intended with us and he bends down on his knees and God wipes away every tear, From every eye, and he writes every wrong, and he takes evil and death and suffering, and he pushes them out of this good world. And all that God intended for you and I to experience, we get to experience with him. That's the ending of the story. That's what we have coming for us. But friends, we're not at the end of the story yet. We're somewhere in chapters 3 through 37. And this is the story where we find ourselves in, where life doesn't always make sense. Things are perplexing. Job did not know the ending that was coming for him. He did not know the restoration that would come. He didn't know that he would meet the presence of God. He didn't know that he would have his possessions restored. He didn't know that he would have his kids restored. He didn't know that his friends would realize that they were wrong. He didn't know any of that. And yet he persevered. He held fast in those chapters. And friends, who knows what part of the story you and I find ourselves in, but the end is coming We just have to wait for the end. And this story is meant to say, do you trust me? God is asking. Do you trust me? Well, you find yourself somewhere in chapters three through 37 before God shows up and speaks to Job, do you trust me?